Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. Mike Vickers is the former Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. He is also a former Special Forces officer and a CIA operations officer. He has been on our show many times before. Today, he and I are going to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We will be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Mike, um, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is... Great to have you on the show again. For for those who don't remember Mike, he is a very special person, uh, tons of experience in the intelligence community, um, also tons of experience at the Department of Defense, very close friend of mine. We worked, we worked closely together uh, during both the Bush and Obama administrations. Mike, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I should also mentioned that we're taping this on Monday, the 28th of February. It's going to run on uh, Tuesday, March 2nd as a podcast. And I just want everybody to keep that in mind because what's going on in Ukraine, these are very fast moving events. So please just remember that as you're all listening. I should also say that, that this is not going to be sort of a standard intelligence matters interview where I'm asking questions and Mike is 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 answering them. We're going to actually try to turn this into a conversation, maybe the kind of conversation that we would have had in in one of our offices when we were back in government, or the kind of conversation that we have today when we're having breakfast. 
um, together. So we'll try to make this a conversation. So Mike, I'd, I'd love to start by talking a little bit about where we are and then we'll go to sort of how did we get here and, and where might we be going. But I, I really want to start with, with the situation that Vladimir Putin finds himself in, right? And the question on my mind is, did he miscalculate, right? And nothing seems to be going right for him, you know, not the fight in Ukraine. Most people thought, sure, the Ukrainians would put up a struggle, but um, he would quickly get to the capital. Nothing seems to be going right for him in terms of the international response. Most thought it would be more, more split, and it's, as you know, significantly unified, and certainly not the response that he hoped to get at home, right? What we have is people out in the streets protesting. Um, so I'm just wondering how you think about that question of miscalculation. You know, I'm beginning to think this might be one of the most significant miscalculations he's made as president. Yeah, not surprisingly, Michael, I agree with you. I think this is a major strategic blunder. And I think it stems from the fact that he's overconfident that he always wins his wars. You know, Second Chechnya War, uh, Russo-Georgia War in 2008, annexation of Crimea and seizure of the Donbass in um, uh, 2014, his intervention in U.S. presidential elections in 2016 and 2020, and and now this. Um, but he he's really in a no-win situation. I mean, the the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and territorial defense forces are way overperforming, uh, and Russia's forces are way underperforming. They haven't been able to take any major cities. Its forces have been repelled and pushed back in several places. They haven't even been able to achieve air superiority after four days of war. You know, in short, Ukrainian David is just kicking the crap out of the Russian Goliath. Now it's only four days, four days in. The Ukrainian leadership and and people's grit inspiring the world. You know, as you uh, noticed uh, noted, uh, Europe and more and more of the world is mobilized in opposing Russia. Turnabout in Germany is particularly striking. Yeah, yeah. They're willing to supply stingers and other weapons. Several countries, including small ones on Ukraine and Russia's borders, are providing weapons to the Ukrainian resistance. So, and then you mentioned his position at home. You know, the central bank sanctions are already biting. The ruble fell 20% today. Uh, and so while he's progressively turned Russia into a police state, uh, and killed or attempted to kill and jailed his opposition, he's increasingly vulnerable at home. You know, um, I think you're right about history driving his calculation here and how easy he had things in other places militarily, but history may have been affecting how he was thinking about how the West would respond, right? Because before they didn't respond as a group, uh, the EU didn't join sanctions in 2014. The U.S. sanctions in, in after Georgia, after the, the invasion in 2014 in Ukraine, after uh, the 2016 election, you know, they were essentially slaps on the wrist. So if history was guiding him, right, it, it's not it's not turned out the way that it had turned out before. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. That's certainly what he expected. I don't I don't really see the theory of victory he had other than he thought he could really divide the West and 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 conquer Ukraine easily. But, you know, I would add, you know, he, he doesn't have enough force to achieve his objectives. You know, uh, if he keeps his forces in Ukraine, even if he were to 
nominally install a puppet government, Russia's casualties will increasingly mount as long as the U.S. and the West support the resistance. And if he withdraws, that public regime would be in mortal danger from day one. So he's in a real tough spot. So, Mike, you think he's at risk militarily in Ukraine, that he could get bogged down, that he could fail to meet his objectives. Um, Is that your sense? Certainly mine. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Now, he does have escalation options. And, you know, a lot depends on what the West uh, continues to do. So how do we make it more likely that he fails militarily? Well, I think it's really important that he failed. Boris Johnson has said that, and I certainly agree with it. If we don't defeat him here, um, if he does prevail, he's likely to go on. And, you know, Ukraine isn't his sole interest. He's likely to go on and, and, and do other things. So, you know, the way we make it more likely is strong support of the resistance. Uh, Ukraine has a lot of things going for it that uh, resistance movements would need. Uh, friendly border countries, 2,500 kilometers of border with NATO countries, external sponsor in the United States and others favorable terrain, and most importantly, a society really mobilized uh, for irregular irregular warfare. You know, so that's one way, and then really biting sanctions. We haven't put sanctions on the energy sector yet. Uh, they've been exempt. Uh, we haven't put full sanctions on SWIFT. They've been mostly symbolic. There's ways to really hurt the Russian economy and to uh, undermine Putin's rule at home. Um, through non-lethal covert measures. He's done it to us. We should certainly return um, the favor. My concern is if he escalates internally in Ukraine, if he levels cities like he did in Chechnya and and Syria, uh, indiscriminately kills civilians, employs chemical weapons, um, I hope we would get off our duffs and use air power to stop stop that carnage. Um, uh, you know, air, U.S. air power could certainly bring an end to this war um, much sooner than a regular warfare could, although a regular warfare will make his position increasingly untenable. wonder, Mike, why he's struggling so militarily, right? I mean, uh, one is the will of the Ukrainians to fight, right? And will to fight is incredibly important, as we saw in Afghanistan, um, where there was not a will to fight. Um, So there's the will to fight of the Ukrainians, very effective at what they're doing. But I'm wondering to what extent the Russians made mistakes militarily, number one. And number two, I'm wondering to what extent his own troops, Putin's own troops, don't have a will to fight here um, against their Ukrainian brothers, particularly killing women and children. Yeah, I think that's that last part is a big um, part of this. Uh, Russian troops seem to be um, surrendering, uh, you know, even in fairly elite formations. Uh, First uh, Tank Guards Army, for example, that's uh, led part of the assault on, on uh, Kiev, um, has, has really struggled. Uh, even their um, special forces don't seem to be performing um, all that well. So, I think the Russian military here was really overestimated in its in its um, in its capabilities. You know, now taking cities is hard, but they haven't even done well on the outskirts. So back to the Mike, back to the question of is he at risk politically at home? You know, my, my view is that 
this may be the first time that he has done something that significantly risks undermining his strength and perhaps even risks him losing his job. You know, the oligarchs are paying a significant cost here. His whole society is paying a significant cost. Women and children dying in Ukraine and, you know, being stuck in subways and, um, you know, being, you know, struggling to get out of the country. That, that kind of thing doesn't sell well in Russia. And, and just wondering how you think about the vulnerability uh, that, he, that he faces politically at home. And, you know, could we, could we see an end of Vladimir Putin's rule here if things continue to go badly for him? Yeah, I think it's not out of the question. I mean, there's, you know, he has this tacit alliance with China and China may prop him up in in, in some ways, although there seems to be some um, wavering there. Um, But I think this is the most precarious position he's been in in his 22 years of rule um, by far. You know, he had a he had a good economy the first eight years. uh, you know, after that interregnum with Medvedev uh, for four years when he was prime minister, then he came back and he's been increasingly belligerent. It actually started in 2007 at, at a speech he gave in Munich that was vehemently anti-West. Um, but he's had this string of victories and they've built up reserves, you know, and he's clamped down on the opposition. But this this changes things um, very dramatically. The, the tenuous position that Russia's in now um, globally and then the the costs the costs at home, including the psychological costs of this brutality. And back to something you said earlier, you know, I'm wondering about the risk of escalation here. You know, will, will things not going right for him lead him to be more reckless? You know, you talked about Chechnya-style activities in Ukraine. Any any risk, Mike, that that you think he might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? It's possible. I think he would use, you know, he would flatten cities and then use chemical weapons and then um, uh, potentially nuclear weapons. And if he did nuclear weapons, I think the first thing he'd do likely is a demonstration shot. You know, something we talked about a lot in the Cold War, you know, to signal intent and try to get your opponent to back down, you know, fire off a weapon in some uh, area without a population over water or something to say, look, I'm, I'm serious. And so I think that would be their first move. But, you know, the Russians consider tactical nuclear weapons as just another weapon to employ right. under the right circumstances. And their fundamental doctrine is to escalate, to de-escalate. And he's got options. They, the internal ones I talked about in Ukraine, um, he could widen the war to a NATO frontline state, particularly the the, the Baltic countries, um, you know, we tend to think of sanctions as is almost this free lunch, something you could do if you don't want to use hard power uh, and punish an adversary. You know, it works against some adversaries, although it takes time. Um, Putin's not likely to take that lying down. You know, if you do enough real damage to his economy, you know, something like defeating him in war conventionally or, or other means, um, he, he would lash out to try to stop that. And cyber is his most likely weapon to do that against um, the West and the U.S., uh, particularly maybe in the energy sector. Financial sector is a harder target. Um, 
but he also could um, cut transatlantic cables, and that would really have a bad effect on the on on the global economy um, and, and do other things. So he seems desperate and he's reckless and he doesn't seem like the same guy he was five years ago. So there, there definitely is an escalation risk. So Mike, you, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that if he uh, starts indiscriminate killing the leveling of cities, uh, the use of chemical weapons, that, that the West should essentially join the fight from the air. And, you know, I certainly see the logic in that, but I also see the risk, you know, for escalation of general war between Russia and NATO or Russia and the United States. How do you think about that risk? How do you think he would respond to, you know, F-35s over Ukraine, um, shooting down his aircraft, bombing his troops on the ground? How do you think he'd react to that? Um well, there certainly is is a risk, um, um, but I think he'd also fear it in some way because we have superiority uh, in those areas, and that would put him in a an even bigger bind. You know, all most of his available combat forces are tied up in Ukraine right now, and so he's bitten off more than he can chew already. And so, you know, if he succeeds there then he could do other things. He might lash out with a strike or two against uh, NATO countries, but an all-out invasion, they're, they're invading Ukraine right now. Um, so I think there's a bit less risk of that. You know, I would add, we had to deal with this problem in the Cold War. You know, we were prepared to defend Europe against Soviet forces on the inner German border, um, where there was the risk of escalation. If we're going to defend South Korea against the North Korean attack, there's a risk of escalation. North Korea has plenty of nuclear weapons. If we're going to defend Taiwan, uh, China has nuclear weapons. So this is not a problem you can wish away, I, I think. Uh, uh, and so Ukraine has to put in, be put in that larger strategic context. You know, if we can win indirectly, that's great. I think it was a real mistake to take the at least the possibility that we would use um, U.S. air power and, and build up forces to match Putin's build up in Europe like we would have done in the Cold War um, before the conflict. I think we might have prevented this war had we done that. Um, you know, we and the Russians and the Brits are all signatories to a thing called the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, where Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in, term, in, in return for assurances that it's sovereignty and territorial integrity would be respected. Now, it wasn't a collective defense treaty, but it should have some force, and, and we haven't even mentioned it. And it was a promise. It was an absolute promise from the and it West. It was a promise. That's absolute. right, from a U.S. administration. And 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 I think that might have deterred... Uh, there, you know, lots of things could have deterred Putin had we done things, if we could wind the clock back to 2008, but, but we can't. And what about, Mike, um, what about the risk of other of other ways we get to escalation between Russia and the United States or Russia and NATO. You know, I'm thinking of, of, of the foreign arms that are flowing into Ukraine now and um, the Russians tangling up with that or the, in the Black Sea, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's numerous countries' ships in the Black Sea. Um, the risk of an accident there, I guess, is another way we could get to escalation between, between Russia and NATO or Russia and the United States. 
when I was uh, supporting the Afghan resistance in the 1980s, um, there was always concern that the Russians might and Soviets might invade Pakistan, you know, and so we supplied Pakistan with a lot of capabilities. They they did a number of cross-border raids and airstrikes and sabotage. They didn't have the forces then, just like today, to, to invade, but, you know, the threat was there. And, you know, and as I said, this is war, whether we like it or not. If the sanctions really bite, you know, he might escalate in response to that. We do irregular warfare. He might strike base areas, uh, even if he doesn't fully invade NATO countries. Um, you know, as you know from our prior experience, you know, there's always the threat that the Ukrainian, the uh, Iranians might try to close the Strait of Hormuz uh, in any crisis, and it would take us a while to clear it. And so there are any number of ways um, this could escalate. That's just part of great power war. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Mike Vickers. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Mike, maybe we switch now a little bit to talk about how did we how did we get here? And I guess the first the first thing to talk about is what what does Putin want? You know, why did he do this? How do you think about that? You know, this is not about Ukraine possibly becoming a member of NATO way down the road. It's not about resolving the Donbass conflict, so-called Minsk II agreement or recognition of Russia's annexation of Crimea, or, or even more laughable, Ukraine posing a military or nuclear threat to Russia. You know, what, the threat Ukraine posed to Russia is a democratic threat to Putin's authoritarian rule. You know, and he's been very clear about this. And you know, one of the things I've learned from you over the years is you know, when dictators say something, you ought to listen to them. You know, yeah. It's an important part of international relations. And he's been saying since 2007 that Ukraine's not a real country, that it should be incorporated back into a Russian empire along with Belarus. And he's become increasingly obsessed with the de- denying the legitimacy of Ukrainian identity and sovereignty. You know, it's almost a cult following. You know, they they uh, put Putin's speeches about Ukraine uh, illegitimacy uh, in um, uh, Russian military education and sent these 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 things to uh, all their soldiers, you know. So uh, that's his main goal here: is to extinguish Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, his broader goals are to reverse NATO expansion, weaken and dissolve NATO, and weaken the U.S. You know, at a minimum, he wants a sphere of influence over territory formerly controlled by the uh, the former Soviet Union. You know, at a maximum, he wants to bring Europe more under Russian domination and reverse the U.S. victory in the Cold War, you know, and upend the, the world order. You know, the bottom line is if he wins in Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. You know, I agree with all of that. I would just add that um, that Ukraine, you know, of all the of all the nations that 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 border Russia, Ukraine's special for him. Right. It's it's not only all of the things you said, but it's also it's also uh, to him a very significant political risk 
at least the way he thinks about it. If if Ukraine has, you know, is 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 aligned with the West, if it's a vibrant democracy, if it's a vibrant economy, if it's not aligned with him, then in his mind, um, because of the closeness of the two nations historically, culturally, etc., in in his mind that would be an existential risk to him because he would fear that his own people would look at Ukraine and say, hey, you know, we want to be like them. You know, we want to be a democracy. We want to be tied to the West and we want you to go away. Um, That is a major concern here for him. It's what drove him, I think, more than anything else in 2014 because he was afraid what was happening in the streets of Kiev could happen in the streets of Moscow. So um, I agree with everything you said. I would just add that one piece. Oh, I agree. And, you know, and it's personal in a bizarre way, and he's very crude about it. I don't know if you heard this joke he made about, uh, you know, basically, remarry me, Ukraine, or I'll kill you like we've killed you before. Um, you know, it's, you know, it has this line in Russian, you know, it's your duty, my beauty, which means, you know, you, you, I'm going to abuse you and you do what I say, you know, and it's, uh, it's sick and it's, it, it, Ukraine has a special place for him in, in lots of ways. So, so what do you think when he started this war, what was his preferred outcome? Was it to incorporate Ukraine back into Russia or was it simply to get rid of the the Zelensky government to put his own Ukrainians in charge who would align themselves with Russia, who would destroy Ukrainian democracy, who would put down any protests in the streets. Um, Which of those two things do you think it was? Uh, I I think it was really to incorporate Ukraine back into Russia. Yes, yes. I think I think if he were able to install a puppet government, that puppet government would do just what those idiots in the Donbass did and these new recognized Russian recognized republics and ask, uh, either, you know, for independence, but in this case to be incorporated into, into Russia. And he'd, he'd reluctantly say, okay. Uh, and I think also he would see that as a way to, further guarantee the security of Ukrainian territory because then it would be Russian territory and the risk the risk to the West of trying to dislodge it um, would be higher in his mind. You know, either way, either way, whether it was to install a, pup, a puppet government and he needs to keep some force there to support that government or he incorporates it and he keeps force there, he would be incredibly vulnerable to an insurgency you know, just as the Ukrainians did after World War II when they sent, you know, thousands of dead Red Army soldiers back back to Russia. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, so the the that's the specific goal, right, with regard to Ukraine. What's the general goal? Go go through that again, just so people understand that. Yeah, so I think more broadly, you know, as he said, it's to really reverse NATO expansion, essentially to rewrite the history of the end of the Cold War, and then to weaken or dissolve uh, NATO or to, you know, uh, weaken U.S. ties with Europe, and then, importantly, to weaken the U.S., which he sees as his main adversary. So, um, you know, I think he wants the whole kit and caboodle. Now, you know, he can't, it's not like NATO is going to expel 13 countries or whatever it is from, from NATO that have joined since 1997, but, but that's his goal. So, Mike, here's an important question, I think. Um, 
is is Putin in any way a different person than he was five years ago or, or ten years ago? Are we dealing with the same guy, or has he fundamentally changed? I mean, some people have talked about the isolation he's been in the last two years because of COVID. You know, I don't know about that. Um, but are we dealing with the same guy or not? I think yes and no. Um, you know, he was always cold, calculating, and ruthless, you know, a KGB man through and through. And, you know, a lot of these anti-West, anti-U.S. statements really started in 2007 uh, or even, you know, some of the, some of them like the, the collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, I think dates back to 2005. Um, but he's now more emotional, more erratic, more rambling, I think more reckless, uh, perhaps from increasing self-isolation and confidence in himself. You know, he's been ruling for 22 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and He's really gone for broke here. You know, as we talked about earlier, you know, this looks like a major strategic blunder. So I think in that sense, he really he really is a different man now and therefore potentially more dangerous. You know, I wonder, you know, the isolation, um, the isolation with a, only a small group of advisors, you know, for a very long time, they've all become they've all become yes men. That probably plays a role here. His age probably plays a role yeah. Um, in, ter in terms of him worrying about, you know, whether he can get to his ultimate goal in time, right? Yeah. Um, must must play a role here too. But I agree. I mean, the, the he he is being reckless, and that does make him more dangerous. But we can't. This is really important, right? We can't let that stop us from taking the steps we need to step to to keep pressure on him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the so-called madman theory of international relations. Sometimes it's faked. Sometimes it's unfortunately real, but you're absolutely right in that. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Mike, do you think we could have deterred him from this invasion? Was there any way, is there anything we could have done? You mentioned this briefly earlier, is there anything we could have done to deter him? You know, and in my mind, there's kind of, there's kind of two buckets here. One is a longer term, um, you know, 20 year kind of bucket. And then the other is maybe more of a short term. Maybe I'll take the longer term and, and say, you know, if we had responded anywhere near as tough and as unified as we're responding today, back to what he did 
against Georgia in 2008 or against Ukraine in 2014 or against the United States political system in 2016, I believe that would have been enough to deter him um, from thinking that he could get away with this. So A, your thoughts on that, and B, your thoughts on could we have done something in the immediate months uh, before the invasion that could have deterred him? Um, so I agree fully with that, and I think you're right to look at this in the long term and the the, the short term. You know, the immediate crisis. Uh, I, I strongly agree that had we respond more f- forcefully to his early uh, adventures, um, it would have deterred him, and 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 we didn't. You know, he won all those, and that's why he thinks he can he can't lose. Um, I would add a couple of others. Um, one, you know, you, Ukraine applied and Georgia applied for NATO membership in 2008, and it's been progressively stalled by um, NATO members. You know, you have to have unanimity among 30 countries, particularly Germany and France. You know, if they if they had agreed to that, particularly after 2014, um, I think that that would have done it. You know, that he was actually taking on NATO. Alternatively, you know, if we recognize that NATO membership wasn't available, but we created a, a sub-alliance of frontline states, uh, you know, the Poles have been asking for more guarantees of the Baltic states, etc. So if we had them in Romania and uh, Slovakia and the US-UK, you know, just like we created this new uh, Australia-UK-US alliance uh, in, in East Asia, uh, I think that would have deterred him. Had... Um, the Europeans not made themselves so totally dependent on Russian energy uh, um, going back years uh, where he thought he had a stranglehold on them, that might have uh, helped deter him as well. But um, moving to the near term, I think the biggest thing we could have done was if we had not taken U.S. military intervention, just particularly air power intervention, not ground forces, uh, and had matched Putin's buildup with one of our own, and had we made it clear um, that we intended to enforce the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which um, Russia signed and we signed, um, I don't think he would have started this war. We did none of that. We just watched for months and hoping that sanctions would deter him, and, and they didn't. So this is a great place to transition to how we think, you know, how well the Biden administration has handled this, you know, how would, how do you think about that? So I think um, reasonably well, I think, uh, you know, looking at our government as a whole, the performance of the IC has really been outstanding. Um, uh, I think uh, the administration's rallying of allies in support of you, Ukraine um, has been very good. I think military support to Ukraine um could have been better. It was very poor during the early years. That's another thing we could have done potentially to deter this was to make Ukraine um, a much harder target than, than it than it is. Um, um, but that's been pretty good. And the central the sanctions on the central bank uh, hurt them. You know, I'm reluctant to criticize the administration, so I offer these thoughts solely in the spirit of wanting to see you know more effective U.S. policy. But um, I think we misread Putin for uh, most of uh, the Biden administration's first year in office. Uh, what do you mean uh, by that? Um, I think we thought we could just park the Russia problem and deal mm. with China, and mm. that we, you know, the Biden administration said they wanted a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. Well, they sure as heck didn't get that. Um, 
I think our withdrawal from Afghanistan and then these repeated statements uh, very early on that we would not use direct military force to contest a Russian invasion uh, convinced Putin that we were weak and he could take Ukraine unopposed. Um, uh, you know, and as I said, I think we put too much faith in the deterrent power of of, uh, of sanctions. You know, after the invasion, our our response has been better, but it's still been characterized a bit by incrementalism. So, uh, um, you know, overall, I give them um, reasonable marks. And um, no doubt in your mind that we should we should sanction the energy sector. It's sixty uh, percent of his exports and thirty percent of his economy. Um, and with, with energy prices skyrocketing, you know, he actually benefits to that to the extent that he can continue to export energy. So I think it's your view. I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but I thought you said it earlier. Certainly my view that, that that's the next step here. Yeah. So, you know, there's obvious reasons why we're not doing that, that, uh, um, uh, you know, European dependence on Russian oil and gas and, and, you know, not wanting to have, um, the U.S. population pay more at the pump than they already are, but we're working at cross purposes. It's the same thing with these symbolic sanctions on SWIFT. You either do it or you don't do it. You know, uh, and you know, and as you said, even if they can't convert their uh, oil gain dollars into rubles, they're still they're still getting richer. You know that they can live to fight another day with when the when this conflict is over. So. Um, I think we're kind of in the half measures uh, place on, on, on sanctions at this point. So, Mike, if we think about the scenarios, right, for how this ends, um, what do you think? He, he's really in a no-win position here uh, in Ukraine. I just don't see how he, yeah, he really achieves is. his objectives. Um, and so he's got to find a way out. And, you know, and they're... They're clever about saying anything they want uh, for justification. So, so maybe maybe he'll resort to that at this point. Uh, you know, I wouldn't rule out that he could be toppled. Uh, I, I know it's a long shot, but uh, uh, he he really has put himself in a bind here. Uh, but you know, it could get it could get ugly before it gets uh, better. And I hope we have the stomach to um, to see this through. You know, the irony for him is the more reckless he is in Ukraine, or even elsewhere with, say, cyber attacks against the West, um, the more reckless he is, the greater chance that he gets toppled. That's right. right. And that's why he's he, he's he's stuck, it seems to me. That, he, exactly. He's in a horrible position. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, you know, that depends, obviously, on our response. But I think that's exactly right. We have lots of ways to hurt him that we haven't done yet. And, um, uh, you know, and, and we could certainly do that. And do you, do you, I don't, but I'm wondering if you see any way that he comes out of this with a win from his perspective, or is it right now just minimizing the damage? I think it's more minimizing the damage unless we were to suddenly capitulate uh, and the Ukrainians were suddenly to capitulate, which you know certainly doesn't seem likely. Right. Um, um, so I think it really is, um, damage limitation. I just don't know that they know how to do that. Yeah. You know, if you think about um, him being toppled, there's really only three possibilities, right? One is somebody walks in and arrests him. The other is somebody shoots him. And the other is he shoots himself. He's not going to be able to go anywhere in the world. Nobody's going to accept him. Um, 
So, you, you know, being toppled is not is not pretty from his perspective, which loops back to being as reckless as he thinks he needs to be in order to try to stay in power. Right. Although, um, you know, if he's concerned about being toppled and some of the advisors speak up and he doesn't kill them, um, uh, he might decide that it's, you know, better to forestall that and, and find a way, find a way out of this crisis. You know, just, just one more question. We're, we're kind of running out of time here a little bit, but one more question, Mike, if, if, if this ends badly for him, right. And he, 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 he limps his way out of Ukraine. He's undercut significantly at home in terms of his politics. Maybe he's even toppled. Um, does this end up being a revitalization of the global order? Is this a shot in the arm to the global order that's been eroding the last decade and a half? So I think it's definitely that, but it depends on what the outcome uh, really is with Russia. If he's you know toppled, um, uh, there's still China to deal with, um, and you know at least Europe, the European West may revert back to uh, you know the good days of the 1990s again. You know, slowly over time, um, because China's too distant and they have multiple interests there. Um, if he manages to survive, if he cuts his losses and then w- rebuilds, you still have this tacit China-Russia alliance that has ver- a very different vision of, of the global order that makes it a bigger challenge for us than any time since um, the end of the Cold War. Um, so I think that's that's still uncertain. You know, on the other hand, if he does survive, I think he's really lost the West in Europe at yeah, this point. He's, he's a pariah forever. He's, a, he's pariah a pariah forever. forever. So, you know, so there's a number of ways this can go, but, the, but, but this has changed the world. There's no question of that. Also, if you're, if you're China, right. And you see the world's response to his invasion of Ukraine, it's got to make you think twice about invading Taiwan. Right. Well, I think both both are true. If this had gone easy for him, yes, they might have taken advantage of it. And now it ought to make you think twice. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you, Braden. Great to talk with you. Yeah, my pleasure as always. That was Mike Vickers. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. you ready for an all-new season of survivor you better be because survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss better yet after each episode there's a brand new episode of on fire the only official survivor podcast each week we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments taking you into the how and the why things happened in this season we're very lucky to be joined by an expert the winner of survivor 45 divaya daris What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because 
Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.